Hey, 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 good morning and happy Sunday. Welcome to our second show of the year. We're getting ready to roll here in Weightless in Mind, Body and Spirit with yours truly, Dr. Carol Penn. There you go. There's my website, www.drcarolpenn.com, D-R-C-A-R-O-L-P-E-N-N.com. And I am so excited today because we have a super special show, super special show here in New Jersey. It is bitterly cold down in the 20s. It is... uh, you know, it's cloudy, it's cold. It is a January winter day. So just go ahead as people are coming in, where are you from? Drop it in the chat. And who am I? Dr. Carol Penn, doubly board certified in family and obesity medicine. And I am your master movement meditation and mindset coach, two-time best-selling author, my book, Baby Meditation in a Time of Madness, a guidebook for talented tweens, teens, their guardians and parents who need to thrive, was written for a time such as this, a time such as this, because we are surely living through a time of madness. Hence that display on Wednesday, Wednesday, January 6th at our nation's capital. Some of you may know that on this show, We talk about the medical things and we look at it through the lens of obesity because obesity, it turns out, is something that impacts multiple disease processes, multiple systems. And we know that if we lose as little as three to five percent of that unhealthy fat mass, we, in fact, improve and begin the reversal process on chronic illness, such as diabetes, hypertension, uh, coronary artery disease. So we talk about that and we put it in the framework of our physiology. We also talk about what it means to be weightless in mind, body, and spirit, to have the weight of the world lifted off of your shoulders. And we talk about how the biopsychosocial also impacts our entire neurobiology. And I bring on superstar guests that combine and understand these perspectives to do what? So we can have an informed and educated audience. We can build a global community of those who are educated and informed. And in a very few minutes, you're gonna be meeting one of my superstar friends who has a particular lens through which she is changing and shaping the world. So are you all ready to go? I want to welcome a few guests to our show this morning. Let's see who's up and early with the early bird going to catch the worm. Yes, one of the nation's preeminent occupational therapists. Good morning and welcome, Victoria. Hashtag Meditation Nation. Good morning, Dr. Tanya, and welcome. Good morning, Linda Parker Edwards. Hashtag Meditation Nation, Old School Red Bank. Yes, Marianne, Jersey Girls saying good morning, everyone. Yes, praying for healing for this nation. Yes, Kenny, Kenny, who has written the beautiful theme song for my morning meditation show, Meditation in a Time of Madness, 
The Morning Show, one of our nation's preeminent creatives. Yes. Good morning, my beloved. Hugging a mug of joy from the Jersey Shore. So we have got our early birds on this morning. And now let me introduce you to my next guest. She's waiting backstage and I know she is anxious to come on out here. And I'm not going to use that word anxious. I'm going to whoop, whoop, redial. She is ready to come out here and help transform the world. She is eager to share her knowledge. Good morning, Aubrey. I know you just got one eye open and I'm looking forward to welcoming you and Victoria into our citizen leadership program that is launching at the end of this month. Good morning, Dr. Dawn, all one of our nation's preeminent pharmacologists. Aubrey is one of our nation's preeminent art curators. And last week, we talked all about arts as medicine. So we have a fabulous audience on here this morning. And let us meet Dr. Kelly Randall. Good morning, Dr. Dietrich, my accountability partner, med school mate. Yes, America's relaxation doctor. Let's see her beautiful face. Good morning. So we have Dr. Kelly Randall. I'm going to bring her on because I just want you to see her beautiful face while I'm introducing her and just watch the glow of her smile. And you all, smiles are good medicine. You'll be healed just by gazing upon her continents. You're going to feel better. You're going to feel the shift. So I want you to notice in what ways we are each medicine for the other. So here we go. There she is. <laughs> She's gorgeous. So Dr. Kelly is a board-certified internal medicine physician founder and CEO of Equity Ventures Plus LLC, equity and inclusion consultant, author, speaker, and healthcare coach. She has seven years of clinical experience in both academic and community-based healthcare systems with over 20,000 hospital patient encounters. She is well-respected by her colleagues and patients for her medical opinion. She is also known for her ability to make complex medical concepts understandable for her audiences. She is the creator of my medical journal, Personal Healthcare Management Journal. You can go over and check that out at www.mymedicaljournal.shop. That's M-Y-M-E-D-I-C-A-L-J-O-U-R-N-A-L dot shop, my medical journey. You know me, I promote everybody's everything on the show if it's in alignment with the mission because no one person has the monopoly, right? We all, we all are the medicine for someone else and there are going to be people who vibe to me, people to vibe to Dr. Kelly or to any of our guests. I want you to get to know these superstars. She received her undergraduate degree in biological sciences from Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. She's nodding. These things are true. She earned her doctorate <laughs> degree in osteopathic medicine. Woo-hoo! DOs in the house. We're both DOs from the University of North Texas Health Sciences Center and went on to complete her internal medicine training at Broward, Broward Health Medical Center in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I don't know if Dr. Kelly knows this, but I've been working down in Broward County for the past 18 months. Mind-body medicine 
where we're bringing our trauma-informed programming there after it, that horrible mass murder that took place yes. a couple of years ago. So I'm yes. very, very familiar. And it was, when, it was when I was down in Broward, when I was in the Medical Mogul Academy, that I started writing my best-selling book. Wow. Because my best-selling book initially was in response to this horrible, well, the yes. pandemic of gun violence. Yes, that the hospital that they took all that those took all those patients to is where I trained, and the the face the lead surgeon. I actually did my surgery rotation with him. So yeah, mm-hmm. wow. so there there we go. There's yeah, our connection. connection. There's our other connection. So. Yeah. Beloved audience, you've heard me talk about this. I am absolutely committed to ending racism. It is one of my missions in life. It's not my purpose in life, but it is my purpose reflected to one of my missions. And at this point in my life, my work in diversity, equity, and inclusion is directed toward ending racism. So I have a seminar, a webinar, and a course that I've been blessed. It has, we're now, you know, going into just past one years old with this course. And in 2021, the course is getting even wider national attention as organizations and groups begin to look at what do they need to do, statements that they need to write that is in alignment with ending racism. So, so, so important. So beloved audience, I want you to start formulating your questions about ending racism. Do you think it's a problem? And, you know, do well, you know, what are your experiences? What is it? that we can do individually and collectively. So Dr. Kelly, I'm going to just put out my theoretical framework here. And before I do that, I just want to acknowledge, I'd like to dedicate this show to Dr. Susan Moore, a medical doctor who lost her life to COVID-19 and who put out a very public statement about what she felt was she was feeling Um, experiencing negative prejudicial treatment while hospitalized with COVID-19. Also to my Aunt Jean that I just uh, participated in burying her burial yesterday, her funeral yesterday, her her homegoing service. As she succumbed to COVID-19, I have at least seven members of my family that have COVID-19. So this pandemic is real. The pandemic has uncovered healthcare disparities when it comes to the survival rates and the treatment of persons of color, regardless of your economic status, and also deep acknowledges to Dr. Kelly Randall and her family as she also funeralized an aunt two days prior to Christmas. So we are, you know, we're ending this year, 2020, with, you know, so many difficult things. And we're starting 2021 with ongoing difficulty. So we're here. We're here. You're here. I'm here. What are we going to do about it? What are we, what are the shifts that we are going to make? What are the shifts that we are going to make? So 
the theoretical uh, framework is this. I'm suggesting that ending racism is the lens through which to, to look, to bring about healing to the globe at this time. Not that all the other lenses aren't important. It's just like this is a kaleidoscope and the kaleidoscope goes around and you can take in the same way that we've taken obesity medicine and say, look, you know, if we look at solving diabetes, heart disease, thyroid disease, looking at it through this lens, this is what the science tells us. So when we look at racism in the same way as a disease and we just look, shift the kaleidoscope to look through that lens, might not we have a better opportunity to end poverty, to end world hunger, to end chronic illness, to end mental illness, to end housing inadequacy, to even work and shift issues around climate change. So that is the theoretical framework through which I am focusing my lens, including everyone, including all of humanity, there is no point in time in which whatever the optic is, the color of your skin, that you are not a part of humanity and everything matters. So, Dr. Kelly, with that being said, come on in. Let's 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 talk. Yes. Thank you so much for the invitation and for having me. I'm honored to be here. Absolutely. So my question to you is. Well, first of all, tell us a little bit about what brought you to this work of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Why does it matter? Why is it important to you? Yeah, um, so I got to a place where I just didn't feel fulfilled just with my clinical work. Um, And so I kind of had to start searching myself and uh, really went into prayer about what it was that God was you know, leaning on me to do what my my work was supposed to be. And so in that prayer time, God revealed to me that um, I would be speaking, that I would be an educator, um, that I would be advocating for, for others, um, using my platform, using my voice, using my knowledge base to make life better for others. And so out of that, um, really came my mission, came my purpose. Um, and then, you know, in this, the following spring, um, ended up getting connected with the medical moguls and just kind of have birthed, um, you know, what is currently, um, you know, my, my, my platform and what I'm passionate about. And that is ending healthcare disparities for Black and Brown communities. Um, and because of my work as a hospitalist, it's really obvious. It, you know, it really is on full display um, pretty much at all times. Um, and that can be from the response that I get from Black patients when I walk into the room versus, um, you know, just their disposition um, when it comes to their healthcare and and hearing their experiences, um, so there's just a a, a whole uh, spectrum of things that really brought to the forefront the the necessity of this work, um, and so that's kind of what brought me to this place and made me realize that now that I've gotten the clinical part kind of under control and kind of understand that really well. Now what? And so this is my now what. 
<laughs> and so what is the response that you get when you walk into a room um, from your from your black patients, patients that look like you? Yeah, most of the time it's like, wait a minute, you're a doctor? And I'm like, yeah, you know, and they're like, wow, I've never had a black doctor before. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know, we engage on that or I'll get, wait, you're a doctor? Are you sure? Are you old enough to be a doctor? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I am. They're like, wow. Or then I'll get, man, that's fantastic, sister. Just keep going. We need more of you. You know, so it it, it basically brings, because we don't think about those things. Um, we walk into a room, we don't always know whether they're black or white or, you know, what we're going to walk, what situation we're going to walk into. And so when I greet patients, you know, and I see it on their faces um, that the the recognition, the like the ease, like, oh, man, we can just talk because I know you're going to get me. Um, so, yeah, the, the experience, it, it reminds me that, oh, yeah, I'm black. Right. Like, you know, I never forget that in my daily, you know, walk. But in the hospital setting, it's not the thing I'm thinking of. You know, I'm like, OK, this is so and so, so and so who's here with chest pain. You know, I'm not thinking about. Um, that I may walk in and the color of my skin may be a calming or maybe a peaceful element um, or connection to the person who's coming to, you know, to, to be helped. Um, and so I kind of had to, that was a wake up call for me. Like, oh yeah. I, okay. I get that. Yeah. And so do you think the color of your skin in those instances makes for good medicine? Absolutely. 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 Um, you know, we've talked about this um, before. You know, there's data that suggests that, you know, black patients, black and brown patients get better care when they're cared for by black and brown uh, physicians. Um, so absolutely. It brings down barriers. There's some cultural things that I understand. Um, and there's an understanding without even having to speak about the fact that I understand or that they understand. Um, and so absolutely, um, I think there is a certain um, peace that we find in connection that we find um, in like, in people who look like us. Um, absolutely, absolutely healing. Well, Dr. Kelly, let's also talk about the flip side of that. Mm -hmm. So if if you notice that in, in your work when, you know, like meets like and there's like, ah, the sigh of relief, what does it suggest to you that those patients might be experiencing when someone who doesn't look like them walks into the room? Well, I know based off of our, you know, history in this country, there's a lot of trauma for a lot of a lot of folks, um, you know, a mistrust of our uh, white brothers and sisters, um, just historically, you know, and we are a tight knit community um, that that values experience, values our ancestors, values what we were taught. And so, you know, we're not that far removed from Jim Crow. We're not that far removed from slavery, you know, and the, the ramifications thereof. And so when your grandmother tells you not to trust people that don't look like you because her history and her, her narrative has been written um, in that way, then you carry that. And so uh, for a lot of people um, coming to a hospital, when they come to see me, it's traumatic for them because they didn't want to come um, because in their experience, we, we killed big mama or, you know, my mother came in here and she never left 
mm-hmm. or all you all do is push pills, you know? And so there's this preconceived notion um, of, of an agenda that we may or may not have, but it's the perception thereof. And so when that's their perception, it is also their reality. Um, and so they project that, they bring that forward. And so sometimes um, having a face that looks like you um, to break down that barrier and kind of explain things and kind of say, no, I'm here to help. I'm here to help, um, you know, is, is um, it, it at least takes down one of those walls because they're not looking at me from a defensive lens of I'm the enemy or I'm here to hurt you because that's not historically their experience. So yeah, definitely um, having someone who looks like them removes at least that one barrier. They may still not really want to be there and there still may, may be some mistrust, but at least the color of my skin, they feel a little more comfortable. They can they can at least be themselves. All right, we have a comment and a question, Dr. Kelly. I'm saying, I love my audience. They are up and they are clicking. Those brains are, so the comment, it's a shame that we have to get labeling and separating uh, every category in life when we are all a part of the human situation. Yes, it is. And uh, Victoria is also an occupational therapist. Very true as to patients' reactions. And from Marianne, here's the question. Is cultural ethnic sensitivity part of foundational medical training? Let's both answer that, Dr. Kelly. (laughs) No, (laughs) Um, it is not. Um, I will say... Um, a lot of, for, let's let's back up. First of all, most medical schools and most medical programs are historically white, unless you're at one of the black institutions, Morehouse, um, you know, uh, Meharry, um, and so wow. forth. Yeah. Um, so if you're at a black institution, that you know, obviously that's one thing. But the vast majority of this nation's um, higher education centers are white. Um, you know, my med school class was 206 people and there were five black people in my class, five. Um, and literally that was the very first question my mom asked me the first day of medical school, not how did it go? She was like, how many black people? <laughs> that was her very first question um, because she knows that I'm in a environment that is not nurturing to me. And so there's going to be some gaps in what I need as a minority in in, in that space. Um, and so, no, in my medical school training, I didn't receive anything in the way of, um, I'll say we maybe talked about it a little bit in terms of like um, our clinical medicine class, but it's, and, and that's part of the osteopathic um, education is a little bit more on the sen- being sensitive, but a, a course or um, actual didactics in being culturally sensitive, what it is to understand others' norms um, may differ from your own and how to navigate that space when you're treating someone who may be from a different ethnic background than you, someone who may um, be from a different religious background than you, someone who um, experiences the world differently. Um, There wasn't a whole lot of focus on that um, in in my experience. All right. And so, Dr. Kelly, what year did you come out? I graduated in 2010. Okay. So, and I was out just before you in 07. Uh, As many people know, I'm non-traditional. 
And I let me ask Dr. Dietrich. Dr. Dietrich is part of our audience this morning. Do you remember how many African-Americans were in our class, uh, Dr. Dietrich? Because there, well, we went to Rowan University School mm-hmm. of Osteopathic Medicine, and there was a big push to uh, have a class that was rep, you know, represented uh, minority uh, populations. And I know that, you know, most of our class uh, had African-American females. There was a very small percentage of, of minority men involved. So I just um, want to read. So this is from the uh, article published in the New York Times on June 21st, 2020. The secret to keeping black men healthy may be black doctors. Black men have the lowest life expectancy of any ethnic group in the United States. Much of the gap is explained by greater rates of chronic illnesses such as diabetes and heart disease, which afflict poor and poorly educated black men in particular. But why is that? Lack of insurance? Lack of access to health care? Now, a group of researchers in California has demonstrated that another powerful force may be at work, a lack of Black physicians. In the study, Black men seeking Black male doctors who are much more likely to agree to certain preventive measures um, than were Black men seeking doctors who were white or Asian. Although 13% of the population is Black in the United States, just 4% of the doctors are Black. The study published in June by the National Bureau for Economic Research involved 702 Black men in Oakland, California, who came to a clinic for free health screening. They were randomly assigned to a Black male doctor or one who was white or Asian. Neither the men nor the doctors knew that the purpose of the study was to ask if a doctor's race mattered when he or she advised these patients. As it turned out, the racial effects were not subtle. Diabetes screening was part of the health check, and 63% of the Black men assigned to a Black doctor agreed to the screening, but just 43% of those assigned to a doctor who was white or Asian consented to be screened. The uh, 63% of Black men with a Black doctor agreed to cholesterol tests compared to 36% assigned to a doctor who was not Black. So, you know, again, this is where, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, the optic matters. And that is because of, you know, what you're saying, the historical mistrust, the mistreatment of disenfranchised populations, Black, Mm -hmm. Brown, mentally ill, LGBTQI, by our colleagues, by our Mm -hmm. profession, we have another question here. Are you finding white colleagues attempting to reach across the aisle with true sensitivity versus cultural co-opting as in other fields? What's your experience with that? I would say, I don't know. I think for me um, in the hospital setting, because we're such a niche group, that it doesn't really play out that the same way um, as it does in other um, professions. So, you know, especially now in the era of COVID, um, everybody's so inundated with patient care that I don't think we have these conversations, honestly. 
um, especially not now. Um, I think in when you're a physician, even if a white physician holds certain ideas about Black people, it doesn't necessarily come across to your Black colleagues all the time because you are kind of seen as the exception. And so there, and, and, you know, we're colleagues, right? So I have the same credentials you do. Um, and so that there might be microaggressions. We know that exists. But as far as like an out and out um, contention, I don't know that that exists so much as our patients would perceive it. Um, so I don't think our our colleagues even perceive or think that there's a reason to reach across the aisle, right? Because we're all here. And so a lot of times our interactions are patient-based and not personal. Um, so most of the time, I don't feel like we were, we're connecting on anything really personal. It's about our patients and everybody's moving around and um, just trying to get the job done. So I don't really know that people even recognize that what we're talking about is a thing that this is really happening and and there's data um you know to to uh to back that up that most physicians if you ask them if they're racist or if they hold any bias they're going to tell you no because at the core we're all altruistic people that's why most of us got into to the field so no one's going to tell you oh no i treat my black patients differently but the data suggests that we do right black folks are more likely to get offered dialysis over renal transplant well, I don't really think that consciously the nephrologist is saying, you're Black, let's go ahead and go with dialysis, right? But there's something that makes them give us the lesser option. Black folks are more likely to get, or Black men are more likely to get an orchiectomy than white men. Um, amputations, more likely to happen in a Black patient. Um, cancer screenings, uh, aggressive treatments up front, more likely to happen in a white patient. So, um, these little things that are unconscious are there. They just don't know it. And so um, when they're interacting with us as colleagues, I don't think they see that either. I don't think that they it registers. So as far as like the reaching across the aisle, I will say no, just because I don't think they even acknowledge that there's an issue, if that makes sense. Yes. No, it makes a complete sense. I was just uh, reaching to to grab uh, some of my notes here. So Marianne is saying that, you know, microaggressions exist, may be invisible to patients. And, you know, and that list to add to that, that's the same with, with mental health, that Black men and women are more likely to get a diagnosis of schizophrenic or they get a psychotic diagnosis and they're less likely to be offered medication and or treatment and it's they're they're more likely to be criminalized because of their their diagnosis and again it's something that is invisible to most of our colleagues so one of the things in the my course offerings is I get people to reflect of whatever color you are. So when did you first become aware of race? When did you first become aware that you were assigned to a particular race? And I use some evidence-based techniques to move people to this so that we can all look at, own, and realize what is our part in the outpicturing that resulted in that display we saw on Capitol Hill. 
We're all a part of that. We're all a part of that. And the other thing that I like to do is, whoops, is help people with their history. I got too many notes here. I'm telling you, you know, I've been I've been working on this. You know, the notes. Uh, these are notes from my course, Unpacking Racism, and my seminar, The Mindful Genogram. So, for example, we are learning more and more about intergeneration, intergenerational uh, trauma racialized trauma and how this is passed down genetically. So this week in history in 1811 and how many people is, you know, this is on your mind when you put it in life in its historical context, this was the largest slave insurrection in U.S. history begins in the Louisiana territory. After their defeat, many of the 500 rebelling enslaved people are mutilated, decapitated and burned alive. Now, do you think that's going anywhere? That's been passed down in our, through our genetic history, that stress. So some have written about a post-traumatic slave trauma. So let's, you know, keep on moving here. So Vernon Damer, D-A-H-M-E-R, Black businessman and voting rights activist. This is 1966 dies after his home in Hattiesburg, Mississippi is firebombed. So there we go, you know, from hundreds to one. So 1811 to 1966, because what happened in 1811 still has not been adequately addressed. So it keeps coming, you know, it keeps moving, 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 moving forward. So 1890, so we're still, let's go back to 1896. So this all happened in history. This is not something I'm making. You could just, you know, look, look it up if you care to. Mob of 20 sets fire, mob of 20 sets fire to Jefferson Parish, Louisiana home of Patrick, who was white, and Charlotte, who was Black Morris. They're an interracial couple who are burned to death. They are, they are alive and burned to death. Their son, Patrick Patrick Morris Jr. escapes with his life. Now, when Patrick marries and they have children, what do you think happened to that racialized trauma? Where did that go? Stayed right with him. It's and it's here with us today. And it's passing it forward. Right yeah. with us today. 1961, yeah. mobs of white students. So now we're we're at Broward County and you know, and we're with high school students. But in 1961, stu white students riot and school officials suspend Charlene Hunter, who became Charlene Hunter Galt of PBS, the fabulous award-winning journalist, and Hamilton Holmes after they become the first Black students to integrate the University of Georgia. So this is all of just what happened, you know, in history. So we go from the 1890s, which is when my grandmother was born, all the way to the 1960s, very recent history where many of us, you know, there are some of us, not you, my dear, but some <laughs> of us were, you know, having our childhood and, you know, living through that part of the civil rights movement. Right. Right. So let's see. We've got some more comments from our highly intelligent, very engaged and active audience. We have to educate our children, the kids. That's where I wrote my book, Linda. I worked with 
who didn't know about HBCUs, much less black professionals. We as a people have to ask more questions, educate ourselves and participate more in our own treatments. Absolutely true. If you don't have a copy of my book, pick up a copy of my book, Meditation in a Time of Madness. Perhaps my beloved would put the website in the chat because I write about that in my book. And the book is aimed to teach resiliency and these skill sets that we need to be more aware and to survive and to thrive in this day and age. Question here, who, which group needs to to spearhead the reform? Would you like to take a shot at answering that, Dr. Kelly? Sure, Um, I would say that um, it it can come from from either side, Um, but that that I am taking it on um, in my little corner of the world because I realize that most won't. Um, I think all of us could, um, but who is passionate about it? So I think, realistically, it's going to come from, it's got to come from black and brown folks. Because I mean, honestly, if you're the majority now, obviously the the civil rights movement was, you know, there were tons of conscious, um, you know, as we would say now, woke, uh, you know, white people who were a part of that movement and and were very instrumental um, in getting things done. Absolutely. Um, So it could happen, you know, present day, um, but I, I think it, it's going to come from us. I think it's going to come from black and brown folks advocating for black and brown folks. And then as we continue to educate, spread our messaging, um, provide data, show how it changes outcomes, um, then we bring our white brothers and sisters along with us. Um, but, you know, I, I think I'm at a place now. And I probably can say I speak for Dr. Carroll as well to say that I'm not waiting for anyone else um, to 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 do that. Um, I know for a fact that um, if I decide I'm not going back to my my job, somebody else will fill in those shoes. What I don't know is if I don't educate um, people who look like me, if I don't um, speak with my platform, I don't know that who's going to take my place. Um, And so I feel personally responsible um, to make sure that that happens, to make sure that I'm educating on both sides, um, that I'm talking to patients and, um, you know, my peer circle um, about what patient advocacy looks like and why we have to do it. Um, And I think historically, most people know why we have to do it. You know, if you've lived in this country and you've made it into adulthood, I think you know why. Um, It's the providing the how. Um, and giving people a voice and giving people permission to say, hey, listen, yes, you're sitting in a room with a physician, but you're still a voice and you you need to be a part of that conversation and you need to go in knowing um, what to expect, you know, at, at that at that visit or, or going in with your own agenda and being a part of the dialogue. Um, and on the other side of that, I also feel that if I don't introduce the topic to my white counterparts in the hospital, it, people who are taking care of our people, then they they won't know because they don't see it. You know, those folks who rush the Capitol on Wednesday see a totally different issue than we do. Um, what we're talking about right here, right now, and what we're talking about with um, social justice and all the things that we are trying to bring to the forefront they don't see that. 
And so unless someone that they respect, someone that they, um, you know, care for, someone that they um, acknowledge as a legitimate voice says something to them, this will continue. So, um, yeah, I think, honestly, the revolution is going to come from inside the camp, but we can't do it without them. Here, here. And I'm going to just bring to the, the forefront. So what I say, I'm, I'm looking for not just allies, but accomplices. Yes. Who is going to link arms and march yes. with me? Who is going to put something at stake? You know, yes. other than lip service, like, okay, this is a good idea. Because I really feel, okay, this is the lens that I'm looking through to save all people so that the voice of the good people, the voice of love and light is louder than what we saw on Wednesday. And I'm going to acknowledge my uh colleague, Dr. Kathy Weistock, Dr. Kathy Farah out there in Wisconsin. And we presented our Mindful Genogram November at a conference. The focus of the conference is anti-racism and thus began our public work together. So important to unpack this historical trauma. Thank you, doctors. And thank you, Dr. Kathy, for being an accomplice in this. Because, you know, if you have a white skin, you could just, you know, on days it's uncomfortable, you could just stay in your silo. You don't ever have to um, come out. You right. don't ever have to come out. And right. she thinks so. And I'm going to invite everybody in this audience to go to a website and register for a very important conference that's coming out of the occupational therapy community. So let me see if I can bring that up while I am sharing this, while I am talking about this. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Um, I might, ooh, I might have to say it and bring it up again. I don't see where it was at. I'm going to create this banner uh, while I'm talking or beloved. If you could post www.integrativeed.com, I-N-T-E-G-R-A-T-I-V-E-E-D.com, www.integrativeed.com. Integrative Education is the name of the conference. And Dr. Kathy and I, Disrupting Generational and Racialized Trauma, What You Bring to the Table Matters. And that's going to be at the end of February. So there it is. So we are going to, I'm inviting everyone who's conscious, who's trying to wake up, who is woke to participate. You don't have to be an occupational therapist to participate in this conference. So all the doctors on here, the occupational therapists on here, the citizens on here, because this is a hugely important conversation and the transformation has to happen in mind, body, and spirit. So the title of this two-day uh, workshop for us, what we're presenting, Disrupting Generational and Racialized Trauma. Again, what you bring to the table matters. And Dr. Kathy and I are co-facilitating that. Dr. Kathy has been a guest on the show. She's going to be a guest on the show again, because this is what I'm going to be talking about. This is the lens through which I'm inviting 
global healing. This is the lens that I'm inviting love to come in the world. Love is the most powerful medicine that we have. This is the lens that I'm inviting all that knowledge in the medical community, the occupational community, the arts community to come in. Let's get this solved. Why? Because I'm married to a man who lives in a black body. I'm the daughter of a man who lived his life in a black body. And I'm the mother of two beautiful sons who live their lives in black bodies, who their existence, their very existence is being threatened, is being threatened. And we have a comment and a very important um, question. So here's from Victoria, who's, who is in the profession of occupational therapy. It's a statement from her. And if you know anything about the world of occupational therapy, it too is a very white, white world. So ha, in the therapy world is facing the same issues as well as even worse than occupational therapies. I have been told OT is a white woman's profession. You will not be fully and truly accepted. My response was really watch me. They have tried to make me invisible and relegate me to the background. When that happens, I use the equal and opposite force law. I've been left alone. And now they're trying to pick my brains on how I approach cases and achieve outcomes. Isn't that oftentimes what our experience is? And I can tell you, Victoria is excellent. Victoria was instrumental when my husband had to learn how to walk again after having an ankle replacement. And that's how uh, Victoria has become a part of, of our family. And so, yeah, Dr. Kathy, the, there is the, the website again. Uh, Sarah is saying she loves the idea of global healing. Sarah is an activist from my area. We're working very hard to, to bring the conversation to the forefront. This is not an easy conversation to have by any means, but it's necessary. And for me, it's fundamental to survival. So here is another question from our very educated and our very, so I love working with activists. I work with a bunch of activists, as you can see, Dr. Kelly. So this love it. Um, uh, I'm sorry if I mispronounce your name. Is it... Nikkei Montgomery. So, but there's the spelling. Please forgive my mispronunciation if I didn't get that right. Can you explain how trauma is passed down generationally? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's, it's passed down several ways, actually. Um, it's genetic, um, you know, in our DNA. Um, it is also given historically right? Um, and, and in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of attempts at erasure. Um, if you look at um, a, a modern day history book, you know, um, where we're, slavery is being relegated as being um, like a sharecropper experience, as if there was paid work being done. Um, so there's a lot of erasure in history. Um, but prior to that, I mean, just recording what happened to us um, is traumatic. Right. If you've ever um, like for me, sometimes watching Roots and some of those, um, you know, any documentary or docuseries, that's traumatic um, to watch, um, you know, what happened to us historically. But think of the stories that you've been told, um, things that happened. Um, like I said, my parents were um, coming of age um, in during the Jim Crow era. Um, and when, you know, all the civil unrest here surrounding race riots, you know, and all those things, 
Um, they lived it out, but then they got to hear, you know, what their parents went through, what their grandparents went through. And so, you know, think about Emmett Till, right? Mm-hmm. How traumatic that was and how, um, you know, really um, ahead of her time, his mother was. You know, she could have said, no, let's have a closed casket. Um, you know, I want to bury this whole situation. Let's just leave it. She said, no, I want you to see what they did to my son. I want you to, I want you to experience. And so it's a definitely, that's traumatic. And she did that intentionally because she didn't want what happened to her son to become the norm and to be um, closed and neat and pretty, right? Because what happened to her son was brutal. And why do things keep coming up when it's brutal? Because it makes an impact. Um, it makes a hiccup in, in the timeline. And we'll never forget Emmett Till, right? He was young. He was a teenager. He was a young boy. Um, but look how uh, resounding his story is and how so much of that resonates with us today. He died well before you know, I was even born, but I know of the story of him and what it meant um, and how petty what he got killed for was, right? That's all trauma. And we pass that on as we tell those stories, um, especially if you are from a family that is, um, you know, I came from a family of educators. And so my school, every year we watch Eyes on the Prize. And I, I remember watching as a child seven, eight, nine. We watched it every single year, um, watching dogs being set on our people and hoses and being club, billy clubbed and drugged through the streets. It's trauma. It's traumatic. And so, yeah, um, I, I, that's how we pass it down. It's because we're, it's a part of our story. And so in order to tell our story, we can't just tell the good parts, right? We can't, we got to tell all of it. And so it's passed down that way. And like I said, when you're interrupt, when you're having those types of events, it becomes a part of your DNA. It changes you. It changes how you interact with the world, right? Um, look, look now. When you, if you're a mom and have a young black son and you're getting ready to put him behind the wheel of a vehicle, you, no one just hand, most parents of black sons don't just hand them the keys and say, all right, son, have a good time. No, there's a talking to, there's a reckoning of this is, this is the world we live in. That's all based in trauma. And that education that goes from generation to generation to survive relives and brings all those things to the forefront. And imagine you're just 12, I mean, excuse me, you're just 16. You just want to go drive and go meet your friends, but you're getting this historical lesson about what happened to Philando Castile in his car, right? Um, What happened on the New Jersey Turnpike to so many Black men, right? Mm -hmm. Just driving while Black. All of that is trauma and it's relives and it's passed down because it's how we try to prevent those outcomes from happening uh, happening again. But think of Emmett Till's family. They can't help but be different and be changed. And so absolutely, it changes us. It changes our core. It changes our DNA. It changes how we see the world. We pass it down in every single way. So, and what I'd like to add to that, and I want everyone to, to look up, is I want you to look up the term epigenetics. That's the mechanism of action of how trauma gets passed intergenerationally. You could read about the ACEs study, Adverse Childhood Events, which talks about epigenetics. 
I and Dr. Kathy also have given several uh, talks about epigenetics. We bring epigenetics into our course, Unpacking Racism, and also into our seminar webinar on um, intergenerational trauma by examining ancestral bias through the lens of the mindful genogram. So look, epigenetics, E-P-I, G-E-N-E-T-I-C-S, epigenetics. So um, uh, let's see, assist Dr. Montgomery. Please check out Dr. Alana, trauma psychiatrist, new methodology on healing from trauma. Yes, so history matters, hashtag epigenetics. There it is, there it is. And this is how it ends. What's very interesting, you don't have to know the history to be for your DNA to be hijacked by the historical trauma. It's because it just is. So why is it that so many African-Americans have high blood pressure and we need different kind of pharmacology to treat it? Part of it is in that middle passage, we became salt retainers to have enough pressure in our bodies to survive the passageway under starvation conditions. And when we got to here on the other side, those of us that survived, their genetics was already set to be salt retainers as a survival of the species mechanism, which then got passed down into the babies that they had, and it's still being passed down. So, you know, you don't have to know a word about the history for that to show up in you. And that's the perniciousness of it. So I want everyone now, just take a moment, put your hand on your heart. Take a nice, deep, collective breath in. And let's let our shoulders collectively drop. Because I know this conversation is making the hair on the back of some of our necks stand up. This is hard stuff. This is hard stuff. We can look at this history of Emmett Till through the National Museum of African American History and fast forward to the actions a few weeks ago of a 22-year-old attacking another 14-year-old black teenager, accusing him of stealing her cell phone. Why? She had no indication that he had stolen it, as it was a white woman who accused Emmett Till of whistling at her. So again, this need to blow violence through the black bodies, this 22-year-old young white woman physically tackles a 14-year-old. Yeah, I actually have a chapter in my book about um, trauma to black and brown bodies um, because it's historic. Um, we're not the only ones that pass things down um, epigenetically, right? Um, our, our white brothers and sisters learned their barbaric treatment towards us from their ancestors. Um, yeah, yeah, there's um, some really great books that actually trace um, from slavery all the way through present day about the the trauma that has happened to black and brown bodies from slavery on. Um, it's, it's absolutely fascinating to see how some of that has come down and, and translated down. A lot of it is the unhealed trauma of our white ancestors, the mm -hmm. trauma that they were 
running from and that is unhealed. And so one way to to remove it from oneself is to then pass it on and push it on to someone else, which is what has happened. And so this is why I'm saying it is through this lens that we all get to heal. This isn't just about if you look like Dr. Kelly and I healing. This is about if you look like Dr. Kathy, this is about her healing. And she's saying she's using her breath right now as she hears and feels these stories. I'm inviting everyone, go on over here, screenshot this, come join me in my citizen leader course. We're meeting once a month throughout the year of 2021 to really unpack this and heal this. My uh, dear, dear, dear friend, Patricia, always said, where is Good morning, good morning, Patrick, and welcome. Good morning, Dr. Leslie. Oh, here it is, here it is, here it is. So Patricia, please give us some words of wisdom for comfort for all the rallies that are going to happen starting next Sunday at every state capital across the country. I'm very afraid about all the civil unrest. So I'm going to invite all of you join me Monday through Thursday morning. If you'd like to join us live, we're at 7 a.m. But you can watch throughout the day over on my Facebook fan page where I will be offering guided meditation and prayer to settle us in mind and body. Because yes, we are going to we are going to potentially see civil unrest in ways we've never seen or experienced civil unrest. So yes, hashtag meditation nation. Again, for those of you that feel compelled, please register for this conference. We each individually and collectively have to come into this accomplish, you know, to be an accomplice, which would be one of the highest forms of participating anti-racism. And at the very least, we all must become allies allies. So we are reaching across the tables. And as we wrap up today, so as you can see, this conversation, Dr. Kelly, is far from over. Yes. It is far from over. We need to, so here's, here's, here's another comment. I'm first generational Irish, which is also, by the way, I'm more Irish than I am African. And a lot of people, again, because of the optic, you know, they just, oh, a black woman without, you know, without knowing the story, without knowing the history. So politically, socially and culturally, I have I'm acculturated as a black American, a proud black African-American woman. But genetically, that's not my story. And that's the case for many. So, Patricia, I'm first generational Irish. I was taught to think poorly of the English for the treatment and enslavement, stealing of their lands, food for the Irish in Ireland. Yes, historical intergenerational trauma that has been passed right on down, Patricia. That's exactly right. And that's why your healing is as important as my healing. And we can look at it through, and it's time to look at it through this the, this lens at this particular junction in history. So all of us can heal. It's like peeling the layers of an onion. So here I am Monday through Thursday at Dr. Carol Penn meditation in a time of madness, where he's going to come up, you know, uh, 
movement is my medicine. So very important. Very important. So love to our birthday girl community mother. My mom's going to be 99 on January 21. She is still here with us fighting this cancer. Important conversation that must be shared. Thank you both. All right. So yes, we have a lot to unlearn so that we can move forward. So thank you, Miss Montgomery. I want to know the pronunciation. Could you just spell it phonetically for us so I can pronounce your name? A couple of books that I want to share as we are going off the air. My Grandmother's Hands, very important, by Resma Menekum. So if you can't join Dr. Kathy and I in the upcoming conference, uh, we use some of these resources. Go ahead, start to look them up and read them yourselves. But I do invite you to get a jump start on this conversation. I'm inviting all of you into the citizen leadership program where this conversation will continue. The Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson. Again, to put it in historical context, the epic story of America's great migration. The 1619 Project that was published last year by the New York Times is another one. And also Isabel's new book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontent by Isabel Wilkerson. So the, this is what I'm recommending to you now. I don't know, you might not have, you know, it's a little light reading here, but, you know, come, let's get the... Um, Oh, short for Monique. So just like Neek. Okay, beautiful. So Nike, Nike, thank or Nikki, 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 Nikki. Thank you so much, Nikki. Thank you very much. So what's the topic for next Sunday? So Patricia, next Sunday, we're going to be taking another slice of this particular pie. So, you know, February, we often think of as Black History Month. Well, <laughs> we're expanding this. I'm, I'm just January and February is about global health and history. So I'm going to be continuing this and encouraging people to register for this conference over at www.integrativeed.com. Uh, right now, the early bird registration is still going on. So because we need to be talking about disrupting generational and racialized trauma, what you bring to the table matters. And this is an, an effort for all of us to participate in the community together and become the change that we need to see and be in the world. So, Dr. Kelly, would you like to just close us out today. Sure. I want to first start by saying thank you to Dr. Carroll for the invitation. My honor and pleasure to be here with you and your audience. Um, and thank you to all the moguls who are here to support as well. Um, I think this is a very uh, multifaceted conversation. It goes in so many directions. It's so uh, deeply rooted and seeded. Um, and we definitely need to continue to talk about these things within our circles of influence. Um, this is not going to be a movement of one where one person's going to get up and give a great speech and then all of a sudden, kumbaya, and we're going to turn it all around. This is going to take um, an effort by multiple people, thousands, hundreds, millions of us who will all um, make the commitment 
um, to love more, to give more to those around us, to try to change the hearts and minds of those. If we all did that, if all of us committed to just um, loving those in our immediate circle, changing our little circle of the world, we could actually change things. Um, and so I want to encourage everybody to know that it's okay to have these conversations. It's going to be uncomfortable, but it's necessary. And we're the change that we want to see. Um, and so we need to do that um, and, and, and give it our full uh, selves. So for those who are unfamiliar with me, I am Dr. Kelly, board certified internal medicine physician, patient care advocate, uh, equity and inclusion consultant, uh, author and speaker. Uh, I, through my programs, help patients um, to become better educated consumers to improve their healthcare outcomes. And I help those in the healthcare arena to reduce costs, but to also improve their uh, healthcare outcomes. I'm on all social media as Dr. Kelly on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, YouTube, Everywhere is Dr. Kelly. Thank you again so much um, to Dr. Uh, Carol for the invitation. And I look forward to being in, in, in your midst again. All right. So people are saying uh, another informative program. Thank you. Listening to cast on audibles. Yes. Audibles is fabulous. She's Dr. Kathy. I, as I walk, I learned Dr. Dietrich. Thank you again. You know, there's Dr. Kelly, her, her website. <laughs> you all, you can also email her. She'll answer info at drkelly.com. Patricia, thanks for another great show. I'm going to talk to my doctors and residents. I encounter about being the change we want to see. Thank you for Patricia. Patricia's an activist, always doing her part. So yes, thank you. It's time to love more and forgive one another. Yes, thank you for a great show. The noise will not affect my inner peace. Everyone, please have a great week ahead. And yes, Victoria, you see in the comments, Dr. Kathy is inviting you to please be a part of, of that conference. Victoria has been a guest on the show when we, we talked about and celebrated Kwanzaa, but I'm going to bring her back on as an occupational therapist who lives in a black body to do, you know, that's a fabulous, fabulous career path. And again, just like we need more black doctors, we need more black occupational therapists. I'm not saying that had a white occupational therapist shown up in our home in, in, in Philadelphia, that we would not have, have had a similar outcome because, you know, it's licensed. We have the skill set to your point, Dr. Kelly. But the fact that we had someone who showed up with a culturally appropriate curiosity that was able to ask questions that got to the heart of the matter was definitely a part of optimized medicine. So to my medical colleagues out there, that's the invitation. That's for all of us to learn more, to do more, to be more, to even know what questions to ask to get at our patient's medical narrative so they can heal. Dr. Dawn, very powerful. Thank you. All right, y'all. I'll see everybody on Monday morning. Thank you, Dr. Kelly Randall. Dr. Kelly, if you'll just hang out in the green room after I sign off and see you all Monday morning for meditation and a time of madness, the morning show. Yes. Awesome show. Thank you so much.